Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with my co-host today, Rachel Morello, and we're going to be talking about shipwrecks and pirate treasures and, more specifically, Indiana University's underwater science program. Um, if you want to uh, join us on the program, you can do so by calling 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you will be talking to Rachel and I, but also the uh, the guests on the program who are the real stars. Uh, Charlie Beaker is here. He is the founding director of the Underwater Science Program. Mylena Haydu is diving safety officer for the Underwater Science Program, and also Matt Mouse is a research coordinator and a lecturer with the Underwater Science Program. And we're also going to be joining, uh, be, being joined from Indianapolis by Jennifer Pace Robinson, and uh, Jennifer is Vice President of Experience Development and Family Learning at the Indiana Children's Museum. So she'll be on the phone with us for the first half hour. Um, Charlie, I wanted to start with you because I think uh, a lot of people might be interested in, to know how Indiana University here in landlocked Indiana got this uh, underwater science program started. Well, first, I want to thank you for being on the program and uh, opportunity to talk about it. We're very excited. That's a common question. Everybody says, why Indiana? And I, I guess I would start with, why not Indiana? Uh, we happen to have had one of the oldest academic diving programs in the country. started in 1963 by my uh, predecessor, Art Minheim. Uh, I got involved in that program in 1984, which was teaching scuba as a uh, uh, recreational-type activity. And then I moved it into the realm in the 80s uh, into research. And in 1992, we founded the Office of Underwater Science uh, with a generous contribution from uh, Foundation Marine Continuum in Florida. So now we have a research arm, and we also have an academic arm uh, in the School of Public Health. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what you do is actually um, field work. You're all, you're, uh, we've written many stories about you, but a lot of the stuff is, is taking people out and actually exploring you know, underwater. Yeah, as one of my colleagues in Dominican Republic said to me a few years ago, you know, if you could come down here and not have all these students with you, we might get a lot more done a little faster. And I explained that as a professor at the university, of course, that's our mission. And it's it's quite rewarding because it's not just teaching scuba. Uh, it's really teaching research in an underwater science activity. And that can be biology. It can be archaeology. It can be lots of different aspects, park development, which we specialize in. But it really is meaningful that the students themselves get the opportunity to go during our summer field research projects. Mm -hmm. Now, Matt, as the uh, research coordinator, I mean, how did you wind up with this program? You said you're from Wisconsin, right? Yeah. Um, my background in this program actually starts with the Peace Corps, the U.S. Peace Corps. I was uh, assigned to the Dominican Republic, and in my 30 months there, I uh, worked on the Living Museums in the Sea project with my wife as national coordinators. So we were working with community and business and government and Indiana University to promote the maintenance and establishment of this national system of marine protected areas. Mm -hmm. And when, when you got to the Dominican Republic with the Peace Corps, were you aware that's what you were going to be doing? Did you know about IU's program then? No, not at all. Um, I was actually, we were both, my wife and I, assigned to a reforestation project on the border with Haiti. Um, but the Indiana University came to the Dominican Republic and started uh, offering training to Peace Corps volunteers to integrate the PCDR into the Living Museums Project. And through that, I, I uh, was eventually reassigned through request of the Dominican government uh, to the Living Museums in the Sea Project. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... Um Mylena, so your role as the diving safety officer, what, what, what's your role? You're, you're just teaching people how to dive and making sure they stay safe when they go on these trips? Sure, Bob. That, that about sums it up. <laughs> Does it? Yeah. Um, and how did you get involved with IU? Well, 
For me, my story actually began in 2007. I was an undergraduate here at Indiana University, and I enrolled in a scuba class as an elective course, which I think many of our students do. Um, I was studying psychology and anthropology and discovered after my first semester that scuba could be used as a tool um, and more than just a recreational fun activity. So I continued my um, education and participation in the program and continued through until an instructor development course. Mm-hmm. Um, again, let me uh, retrace and, sure. and say, again, scuba is a tool. Um, we often refer to the teaching of scuba diving um, as similar to driving a car. You go through a course, you learn how to utilize this vehicle, and then you travel the roads. Well, the idea of scuba is the same. Um, we start you off here at IU with the basic training, but then teach you how to use this um, in your field of study, whether it be biology, psychology, um, environmental resource management, mm-hmm. geography, or geology, and so on. So, so you are, are working with students from all sorts of disciplines? Here? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, cross-campus, okay. which is the most exciting part um, to see these students developing in their multidisciplinary areas. Okay. Well, I want to introduce Jennifer Pace Robinson. Jennifer? Hello. Hello. Thanks for joining us on the the uh, Noon Edition program today. So you're involved with this uh, underwater science program because the Children's Museum has a, a big uh, exhibit, correct? We do. And I just want to first say hello to all my IU colleagues. Um, they've been great partners in making our exhibit um, come to life. Uh, we have an exhibit called Treasures of the Earth uh, w- that we've developed with IU and also National Geographic and two other archaeological sites, one in Egypt and one in China. And um, the the feature of the exhibit is uh, the cannon that we have from one of the shipwrecks that IU has been excavating for quite some time. We have a complete recreation of the Captain Kidd site off the coast of the Dominican Republic. And this really started for us um, with me just reading the newspaper and keeping in touch with what was going on in the world of archaeological discoveries and finding out about a man named Charlie Beaker who was doing these amazing things um, with Indiana University with underwater archaeology, which is really appealing to us, and it's kind of mysterious, and it's something that we know that families and and children are always interested in. And we really wanted to create an immersive exhibit that made you feel like you were the archaeologist and you were the one that was finding these uh, treasures that were buried under the ocean. Can you describe that a little more, the immersive uh, experience part of it? I think it all started with we knew we wanted to feature IU's work and the site in the Dominican Republic. And um, then Charlie invited me to come out and actually experience it firsthand. Being on the boat and then seeing Charlie's notebooks and the maps he had drawn of the various shipwrecks and then having the experience of, you know, diving off the boat and then just in a very shallow pool of water being able to see the remains of this amazing shipwreck with a pile of cannon. And so the more we learned about that site, um, the more we really wanted to have children feel like they were part of that expedition. And so we have a two-level exhibit where it actually you can look over um, an overlook and you feel like you're on a boat. And we um, have some great videos of the IU team, um, real photos of what they were doing and video of them in the water. And then you can go downstairs and it's you feel like you're underwater. We have underwater gobos. Um, through our relationship, we were able to borrow some amazing objects from the Dominican Republic, and they're displayed in what looks like a coral reef. Um, and so there's lots of real objects, that, which is really important to us. And then there's just the fun part of feeling like you are swimming underwater. You can put a tank on your back and pretend like you're diving over the shipwreck. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're talking about uh, Indiana University's underwater science program with uh, Charlie Beaker and Mylena Haydu, Matt Mouse, and Jennifer Pace Robinson today. If you want to join us, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. So, Charlie, can you explain this Captain Kidd's shipwreck she's talking about? You've, they've got the uh, exhibit of it up in Indy, but what, what exactly is this? Well, it's um, – <clears throat> first, it's very exciting, I have to say. It's the only um, – 
academically proving pirate ship in the Caribbean, if you want to talk about pirates of the Caribbean. And uh, what it is, it's a site that was uh, uh, William Kidd's vessel he captured off the west coast of India. He brought her back into the Caribbean in 1698, 1699. He left it off a small island. And this is all from the testimony from the trial of Captain Kidd. we got volumes of records. But he left his vessel knowing that he's being accused of being a pirate. He had a smaller ship, the San Antonio. He sails from Dominican Republic today to uh, New York. Has an, he lives there. His wife's there. He has an attorney there. He gets his things in order, turns himself in to the British authorities to try and prove his innocence. Well, it didn't work out so well. Uh, they sent him on to England. He was in solitary confinement. Uh, after a year and a half, they finally put him on trial with no attorney, and they hanged him. 1701, um, May 23rd. So then back to the wreck. Here he leaves behind this vessel, which was a very important prize vessel, uh, uh, Armenian-built, West India, Armenian-owned, built in West India uh, by the Moors, according to the kid's testimony. And he leaves it there. It was very different. And it... it, uh, the, the difficulty was, do we really have Captain Kidd's wreck or not? So when I became involved in this in 2007, that was the challenge to use scientific investigation, use the university's assets to go in, work with the Children's Museum for funding a uh, National Geographic documentary, and go in and prove it. We did prove it. I, I won't go through all the details because we don't have three hours. We only have one. But I will say the, the main evidence was it was teak wood, which is only indigenous to West India in the 17th century. Uh, the ballast stones that we sampled through geological scientists, one of our colleagues working with us, uh, that department very closely with us, uh, found that it was the Controp, a special outcrop of basalts, volcanic igneous rocks from uh, India. And then the real uh, excitement was when we recovered the first cannon for the Children's Museum, which is on exhibit there. Underneath that was a type of joint put together that Captain Kidd called a rabbit joint, which, you know, it's hard to describe on the radio, but uh, it's there. We have the rabbit joint and teak wood. So those three things are actually our crime scene investigation that we can say we have Captain Kidd. Mm-hmm. Was there buried treasure? <laughs> the, yes, there was. Uh-huh. It, it's exciting because, as we tell everybody, Kidd said there was no gold or silver on board that he knoweth of. But we tell everyone that, of course, the ship itself and the history is the treasure. The 26 cannons, the anchors that are there, the very shallow Caribbean setting, uh, eight feet of water, crystal clear. It's hard to believe that uh, it hadn't been discovered. Uh, locals knew about it, fishermen. But finally, uh, all of a wealthy Italian was applied to the government to bring up cannons. And that's when we got involved to go look and see. And I said, this could be important. And let's see if we can prove it. And we did. Mm-hmm. Now, the, this shipwreck what happened what year? 1699 was the year that it sank. It was actually uh, set adrift burn, burning, trying to get rid of the evidence. Um, and it floated into Catalina Island, Windward Side, where that's where we're working on it today. Okay. All right. Um, I wanted to ask uh, Mylena and, and Matt about your experiences diving down there in the Dominican Republic, I assume. Both of you have been down there and been able to explore a little bit. I mean, what was it like when you first got in the water and started looking around? Well, for me, uh, living museums in the sea uh, was really a revelation. I had been diving before I was involved with Indiana University, but going down there and working on these uh, projects in the Peace Corps and since afterwards as a faculty research coordinator at the Office of Underwater Science has been really amazing to see these uh living underwater history exhibits, um, in this case uh, of shipwrecks, uh, with all the amazing biodiversity growing on and around the shipwrecks that we also work to protect. Mm-hmm. Marlena? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> reminiscing on my first time, not only on the Captain Kidd uh, Living a Museum of the Sea site, um, but also the other locations and sites that we have in the Dominican Republic um, is pretty breathtaking. And really leaves me speechless. Um, But to put it into words, one thing I can say is it makes you feel alive and that you're one with the ocean and one with this actual site, um, this museum site. Um, Matt used a word biodiversity, and that is what's breathtaking. You dive down, and we're saying eight feet of water, um, and you see a cannon. And on this cannon is growth, and there's 
living organisms um, and colors and movement. And it really captivates you and allows you to to reflect on the history that's there in front of you, and you get to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And Jennifer, you said you got to go down as well. How how did you find that experience? That was awesome. I mean, you feel a little bit like you're you're in an Indiana Jones movie or something, and um, what everyone's described is the beautiful water, but just when you start being able to see what's there and you're taught what the clues are, so finding the ballastone that are you know, of a geology that's not indigenous to the site, um, putting the pieces together, finding the wood, and then, you know, working with Charlie, and he can tell you this whole backstory. Um, it's so much more meaningful than just, you know, being in a boat out in the middle of the ocean. And so, again, um, I think it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and, and it's our job here at the museum to try to help people feel like they've experienced amazing things, even if they haven't had the opportunity to travel to those places. Mm-hmm. How long have you had the exhibit at the museum? Uh, it's been open about, t- how, how long, Charlie? Two years, three years It'll now? It'll be uh, um, June 11th will be the second year. Yes. So, um, and it's it's a permanent exhibit, so our permanent exhibits uh, generally last upwards of 20 years, so it's it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So are you adding to it when you find new discover? when Charlie finds new discoveries, are you getting exactly. new things? Exactly, uh-huh. we are, and we do have a, a great partnership, and as the IU team uh, works on other sites, um, we've been very fortunate to be able to bring those to the museum and put them in dis- on display. We've got some uh, tanks filled with water for those materials that um, need to stay in the water to be conserved. We also have other display cases where we've been rotating out um, gold and treasure and coins and also, um, you know, less uh, fancy objects, you know, and, uh, nautical instruments and things that tell the story of everyday life aboard a ship of that, at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Explain that a little bit more. So what was the story of everyday life on the give, – give me just a little sample of the story of everyday life on, on a ship that was traveling on the seas in 1699 or the early 1700s. Well, I think, you know, first you should talk about uh, – we should just say uh, piracy. Uh, Captain Kidd was hanged as a pirate, but yet um, – Today you would probably have been exonerated, but let's go back to the idea of piracy. There's many Why people. Why would he be exonerated today? Well, you know, he didn't have his evidence. I mean, oh, okay. uh, there were French passes that he, when he captured the Cato Merchant, he knew were important. He was so important, he took the two French passes and sewed them in the coattails of, uh, of his jacket so that he could turn them in, and he did so. I've had those passes in my very hand. Uh, they said the ship was French and under a French flag. Uh, had listed the Armenian owners, had the navigator, had lots of information. And yet, um, and a French, he was a privateer. He, he could go against the French. And yet, when he turned himself in, these passes disappeared. They didn't show up in his trial. And he says, give me my documents. I'll prove my innocence. He had no attorney. Uh, he has no documents. They put him on trial. They decide that he is uh, uh, working with other pirates. And so they decide that he's a pirate, and they hang him. And as I say with the Children's Museum, if we're going to show pirates of the Caribbean, at least we have a good pirate because he was no pirate. Um, and yet he was hanged as one. But let's go back to the, the time of the 17th century, uh, the days of the piracy. There's many people that would argue this is kind of the uh, beginning of democracy. Uh, you literally had articles of incorporation for the vessels. He was under a letter of Mark or Marquis for, to be a privateer. And yet they had an insurance policies. What would happen if you lost an eye and how much you would be paid if, a, if an arm and a right arm versus a left arm and uh, voting powers and – uh, it's not a perfect world, but it was entirely different than being on board a British ship at the same time, uh, where you were just, uh, you know, uh, a common sailor uh, that you know had to follow the rules and regulations. So there was quite an incentive, and I've seen documents talking about the incentive of why people would go to piracy and have a voice and some insurance and some income versus being a just a common sailor that got shanghaied onto a ship for four years. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious how students are involved in this. What kind of training are they getting there or before they go out, and how are they helping with this whole project in the Dominican Republic? One of the things I'm most excited about with our project is that uh, with our academic diving program and research is that our students uh, really right from uh, the introductory courses become integrated in our research where we really have a research-focused pedagogy where um, 
education and uh, original study are inseparable in my mind. Um, that involves uh, beyond pool sessions and teaching the skills to record data underwater, um, working with us in, in lab sessions, uh, going with us to the Children's Museum to work weekly on artifacts in the exhibit there and do public outreach, and uh, probably most compelling, go to the Dominican Republic um, and work with us on our field programs to maintain and expand these living museum sites, but also conduct um, original research on these sites. Mm-hmm. Um, another way that students are, I guess, involved in our program from the beginning then into the field, um, the tying aspect is this underwater resource management certificate. Um, it's a certificate program that requires more than what a minor might, but not as intensive as a major. And this was created by Charles Beaker in the School of Now Public Health, previously the School of Hyper, as we had called it. Mm-hmm. The Underwater Resource Management Certificate um, is an opportunity for students to take their multidisciplinary studies and then combine that with scuba diving as a tool used for science. Um, it's a 24-credit-hour program, 18 of the credit hours must be through the School of Public Health, and that's where I come into play as their more or less advisor in helping them through that process of obtaining the certification. Um, So many of the students attending are field research opportunities in the Dominican Republic, um, Florida, um, are doing so to work towards the certificate um, and then also to obtain that experience. For a student that comes into the program like you did, mm-hmm. just uh, your first class as an elective, I mean, how long does it take you to become proficient as a scuba diver? The beautiful thing about taking scuba in a university setting is the amount of hours you spend in a pool. If you head down to a local dive shop, it is possible that you will spend a weekend, two, three, four days in a pool setting at most. And at IU, it's weeks, weeks upon weeks. Um, mm-hmm. So that allows you to fine-tune those skills. And then when you enter the open water environment, you're very comfortable. Um, our program is designed that in two full years, um, you could work towards a professional-level rating of scuba diving, mm-hmm. where you start observing beginner students and um, possible instruction. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to go back to Jennifer uh, briefly because she's going to leave us at the break, and our break is coming up. So uh, – Jennifer, give us uh, just uh, a last bit of detail about you know what what kids will find and kids of all ages, I guess I should say, will find when they come to the Children's Museum to to look at this exhibit. Um, I, what they'll find is really exciting, uh, immersive, recreated uh, sites, and these are real sites. So you can walk through a recreation of a mummy's tomb, as I mentioned before, the underwater environment of the Captain Kidd shipwreck and then also a dig um, in Xi'an, China, of the Terracotta Warriors. Um, Specifically within the underwater section, you're going to meet the real people who've worked on on the site. Uh, Matt mentioned uh, students and uh, everybody coming up and and talking to visitors, which is always exciting for us, Um, and also seeing real objects. I mean, we've got some incredible platters, uh, silverware, coins, all things that have been brought up from um, our partnership with IU and the Dominican Republic. Um, we also have some pretty stunning um, gallery theater performances where you actually can see an actor portraying Captain Kidd um, and lots of chances to touch real objects, see um, shells and other things that are from our own collection. So um, it's great for, for all ages. There's something for adults as well as children and it's a really exciting thing to do especially um, for a summer vacation. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have to ask. Now, Charlie described Captain Kidd as, as not your typical, uh, stereotypical pirate. So how do you portray him? How does your actor portray him? Well, it's um, we really are taking that, that point of view that, you know, it's kind of like how you judge him. And he's telling you what he did, and the visitor is given the chance to say, well, do you think he's a pirate or not? And you learn a lot about him as a person, and you learn that it's not so easy or cut and dry to, to kind of brand or label someone a pirate. Um, and so our, our Captain Kid comes off as somebody who may have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, but through that character, as Charlie mentioned, you're learning a lot about the age of piracy um, in that time. 
Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Jennifer. Thank you. Appreciate it. And we hope a lot of people will go to the Children's Museum to to see this exhibit. So uh, we're talking about um, Indiana University's underwater science program today, and uh, we have some great guests in the studio. I'll introduce them after we take our short break. You're listening to Noon Edition. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcast directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Rachel Morello, who's sitting in for Mary Catherine today. And we're talking uh, about uh, shipwrecks, pirate treasures, uh, Captain Kidd, and um, living parks, and all sorts of things that are specific that, that are more specifically tied to the Indiana University Underwater Science Program. Our guests in the studio are Charles Beaker, the director of the Underwater Science Program. Mylena Haydu, who is a diving safety officer with the program, and also Matt Mouse, who is a lecturer and the research coordinator for the program. Before the break, we heard about uh, the exhibit that's permanent exhibit that's at the Indiana Children's Museum, and we're going to be talking about a lot of other things in this last half of the program. So you can join us if you have your questions at 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. So, Charlie, we heard from Jennifer Pace Robinson with the Indianapolis Children's Museum about the permanent exhibit. But talk a little bit about this living museum of the sea that you've got um, in the Dominican Republic. Yeah, uh, it's, it's very exciting in the fact that we have public opportunities, outreach at the Children's Museum, of course, here on the IU campus, a training. But what's really significant is the fact that the site itself is a permanent park now. Uh, we've come up with a concept I have coined for many years, uh, working in parks that we've created in Florida and parks in California and parks in the Cayman Islands, uh, marine protected areas. Now, more recently, Living Museums of the Sea was a USAID-funded project to show that there's an alternative to selling these historic shipwrecks, and instead you could turn them into parks and preserve for sustainable economic benefit. And that's really important, and I think that's, uh, as a park specialist, uh, you know, I sat on the Federal Advisory Committee for four years under executive order uh, talking about our U.S. parks and preserves, uh, to have these things sustainable for future generations. So you've got a 20-year exhibit at the Children's Museum, but with the generous support of Lilly Foundation, with the backing of the Children's Museum, with help from National Geographic, we've enabled ourselves to work in the government system of Dominican Republic so that next year, year after, 10 years from now, you can go there and snorkel and dive this site and continue to see it in its real situ situation as an underwater example of a unique 17th century uh, maritime heritage of Armenian uh, West India built. It's down the Caribbean, Pirates of the Caribbean. So is it, are we got talking underwater everything? Is there anything above water? What Kind of give me a, an idea of the layout. Well, uh, as, a, as a, again, a marine protected area park specialist, there are various components. One is the actual site. So we do the scientific investigation. In this case, we prove it's the Cata Merchant the shipwreck of Captain Kidd that we put uh, moorings in. We drill into the seafloor and put permanent pins so we have buoys for boats. Much like going to a state park, finding a parking lot, you go to the shipwreck site. We don't want you dropping anchor. So you can tie up. There's a historic marker that we've installed. There's a 
Indiana limestone underwater placard with a bronze plaque. It's a dedication plaque that has all of our sponsors' names on it, but it has the government that this is the site. And, of course, it's in Spanish since this is in the Dominican Republic. Uh, there's uh, slates and brochures. Uh, Matt was instrumental in working with these with Peace Corps. Uh, and we still have a national coordinator in the Dominican distributing these slates in multiple languages so that you go there, you have the interpretive materials that you can have a meaningful experience on the site and understand exactly what you're looking at and what its context is today from 17th century maritime heritage that it represents. And uh, that aspect to me of having our students go and be involved in this active research that's permanently protecting these sites is, is paramount to the whole uh, uh, background that we have, or the whole logic of our underwater science program. But it's also more important that you think of it as a living museum. We have corals there, uh, geological sciences. You know, one of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Johnson, is involved with teaching history of corals as part of our certificate program. So you, you learn about why the corals are going extinct. What about acidification? What's the problem with the coral coverages today that are in some places, 15% of what they were 20 years ago. This site has unique corals, uh, common names, elkhorn corals, and uh, which are, you know, uh, palmatas and cervaconas, which are staghorns, which are endangered species in America, and yet we're protecting those on the site. So we're trying to take a piece of history and protect that as a permanent park, and that is really what it's all about. Uh, it's bigger than ourselves at IU. But those components are all the way through to be able to exhibit in the Children's Museum here in Indianapolis or doing a TV documentary for National Geographic. Charlie, does, does this cause any tension uh, with the uh, treasure hunters we see on television and we read about? So I know there are a lot of people um, who you know, want to go find those shipwrecks and they think they're going to hit a big strike and bring up a bunch of gold or silver. Well, I won't say that I've uh, personally had death threats, but I certainly have had lots of confrontation over this because there's no question that we are showing an alternative to, uh, uh, unfortunately, often free American enterprise going into a third world country, making the offer, we've got the money, the wherewithal, we'll just go ahead and do this. And in the Dominican Republic, it's a 50-50 national law presidential decree that they can split these objects that they are entitled to harvest out of the sea. So they get they get half, and the Correct. government gets half, and that's the same thing that used to happen in the Florida Keys, uh, the salvage laws. And there's lots of operators, and many of those are now no longer working in America. Uh, I was involved myself in what's called the Abandoned Shipwreck Act, a federal law that was signed by Reagan in 1989, uh, which uh, it, it really crystallized the concept of historic shipwrecks, federal state ownership management of these sites, parks and preserves that should come out of it. It's not perfect, but it, it clarified the fact that these things should not be harvested as a wreck, as a piece of something underwater. It, it put the historic label on these, which was a loophole, and I won't get into that federal law, but let's just say that I, I was involved in this. And so in the Dominican Republic, their laws are we could be treasure hunters or we could be, in this case, academics protecting these sites. The Cata Merchant, Captain Kidd Shipwreck, was a two-year treasure hunt, $1.2 million. It was a corporation, legal corporation out of California. Uh, they happened to miss it. How, I don't know, since it's an eight feet of crystal clear water. They spent $1.2 million. They ran out of money. Things were falling apart. And then we were brought in to say, what do you think about this site? And I said, I think it's Captain Kidd, uh, and the mission's to prove it. Uh, but meanwhile, are you going to give it back to the treasure hunters and they're going to bring it up and sell it? Or can you let us turn it into a park, in which case we'll sell it sustainably for the next 300 years? And that's unfortunately what they decided to do. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers again are 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. So, Charlie, do you have plans to to look any further in the Dominican Republic? Are you extending outwards? Are you Where else are you looking? What's, what's coming up next? Well, it, you know, and I'm glad you asked that because um, this is just one of many sites we're working on. Uh, uh, we, there's very extensive um, research we've done in the Dominican Republic. Uh, you know, Matt now is, is starting to work on some of the armament of Columbus. I'll let you describe. He'll describe that in here in a moment. But what I want to get you to think about is a phrase I try and everybody practice. 
while we're studying in the Dominican Republic, we say it's Columbus because Columbus first landed in Hispaniola. So Columbus to the Taino, which are the indigenous peoples that he met when he came to the New World. He didn't discover anything. But from Columbus and the Taino to Captain Kidd in the Golden Age of Piracy, that's what we're promoting. And that's all available in Dominican Republic. So indigenous sites, uh, the Columbus contact period, the uh, Golden Age of Piracy represented by the Cata Merchant, but we're working on a ship called the Begonia right now. We have others, a French slave ship that we're very excited about. Uh, that our parks and preserves are not just shipwrecks. They're representative of important aspects of history that can be promoted as living museums in the future, and that's what we're working on. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you find these, these shipwrecks that turn into museums, and what's the, the science behind that? I mean, you, you have to sort of know where to look, right? Well, it's like anything else. It's a um, – uh, yeah, you look at archival records. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at uh, early maps. Um, you look at uh, structures on land. Uh, uh, there's a lot of telltale ways to uh, to get information about the site. Uh, it's rare, the Cata Merchant, that you can find it and put a name on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're really lucky that this worked out. Of course, you make your own luck. Um, but there's no question that it's, uh, it's always a uh, new and exciting investigation. Uh, I'll, you know, I'll let Matt describe our most recent work on the Columbus era sites uh, with students, and it was just you know very exciting days out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this may um, actually we were just on a reef in the southeast corner of the country called Caballo Blanco, which in Spanish is White Horse, and it's because you know it's a shallow reef, so when storms blow in, it can be pretty rough. But we had very good weather while we were down there. Um, on this site, there's actually uh, a number two anchors and uh, some. Uh, Columbus-era artillery, uh, which are bombards. They're wrought iron uh, artillery. I don't really want to call them cannons because they're not what most people would imagine, but they're early technology that was really phased out. How how big are they? uh, These ones are uh, actually they're rather wide, but they're about uh, six, seven feet long. Okay. Um, And they they were breech-loaded. You know, if you imagine your modern cannon with the... more modern cannon, cast iron cannon, where they would muzzle load it. These actually had a powder chamber they'd put in the in the breech and shoot it out that way. Relatively dangerous to the users, um, as much as to the people they're firing at. Uh, but what's important about that is that these this particular type of artillery identifies the site as not a Columbus shipwreck, um, but a Columbus era site. Um, and in fact, there isn't. We haven't located an actual shipwreck there. It appears that they ran aground and ditch these heavy iron objects um, to lighten up and get off the reef. And they may have sunk later, um, but we don't know. So that is something, however, we are investigating. So what is being one of uh, a site such as that, this is currently uh, the only Columbus-era site, circa 1500, where you can get in the water and see these things still in the water. Everywhere else they've been brought up. So as a significant uh, site associated with contact between the old and the new world, um, we're very interested in protecting the site and perhaps someday turning it into another living museum in the sea. Mm-hmm. And where is this? I mean, sort of generally? It's on the southeast coast of the Dominican Republic. Okay. All right. And, you know, Charlie, you, uh, when you answered Rachel's question before, you talked about how, you know, you're working on a lot of different things. How many of these living museums do you have in place now? Well, we currently inaugurated uh, three sites. Uh, our initial um, May 23rd, 2011, uh, 310th anniversary of Captain Kidd being hanged, was the inauguration date that we put together with the Dominican government and the United States Agency of International Development, the Children's Museum participation. So that's when we set the first three official government-endorsed sites as underwater shipwreck parks. Uh, in the United States, shipwreck parks really started after our 1989 Abandoned Shipwreck Act. So we helped put one in 1989 in Florida Keys, a San Pedro, and a 1733 Spanish Galleon. Uh, subsequently, we went to California in 1994, established uh, Lake Tahoe. Emerald Bay is a uh, underwater park for some of the ships that were 6,250 feet above sea level, the highest shipwrecks we like to promote in the world. Uh, that's a park. But Dominican Republic has three, and more recently, uh, we have put it forth for an additional six sites uh, as potential. And 
we hope that uh, our work will continue because this is uh, an important contribution, not only to protect the history, but also the marine environment, and to provide something that's, by federal terms, lasting. It's going to be here, and it's not around for six months, and somebody can destroy it. Captain Kidd is a park that's permanent. So six more sites regionally. We call it a national system. We also were recently, uh, Matt, my, myself, and one of our other colleagues, Billy Carter, uh, were in Haiti. And we're looking at sites in Haiti, and there is not a single marine protected area in all of Haiti, which is just across the border from the Dominican Republic. And the sites we're looking at are exciting. Uh, you know, Henry Morgan, uh, there's two shipwrecks. The Jamaica Merchant is one that we're, we're hoping to make into a a living museum in the future, and then the HMS Oxford, and you know I could go on for an hour on the story of Henry Morgan, but also Columbus era. Is that the Captain Morgan of the there you go. alcohol fame these if, days? If there's a more famous pirate than, uh, than Captain Kidd, it would be Henry Morgan. And they're 30 years within each other's time span. Um, you know, Morgan died in 1689. But at any rate, uh, he lost some ships in, in Haiti, and they should be protected for future generations. Rather than you go online, you'll see treasure hunters trying to go in there and make a deal with what government of Haiti they can get their hands on, which is uh, difficult. Mm-hmm. But then there's the Santa Maria. We were up there looking for, and uh, maybe there again soon. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, I have to say that it's uh, difficult because we can't take our students there. Uh, you know, Haiti's just not safe enough for us to really run field schools for undergraduates and graduate students. But we were all there recently in North Coast, Fort Liberté area, the Santa Maria, which wrecked in 1492. The first ship of Columbus mm-hmm. uh, is in present-day Haiti, and we've got a proposal out right now to uh, – survey and discover the Santa Maria, and uh, it's not funded yet. Uh, with money, I think we can safely get our way in and out. Without money, it's kind of kind of frightening up yeah, there. That would be, yeah, that seems like that would be a challenge and also a, a huge discovery that would rock the world, I would think. So. doesn't get any better than that as far as historic shipwrecks, and uh, <laughs> no, we're excited about the prospect, but we have to do it correctly, and we have to be very careful because it is, unfortunately, it's, uh, it's dangerous. Sure. We have about uh, 10 minutes to go if you want to give us a call and talk about uh, these shipwrecks and what goes on with the Underwater Science Program at IU. Please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat. You can go to the website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. So how how many trips are are the three of you and your students taking down to these different sites during the year? Uh, The students are invited on two trips um, that we actually took this last May. One trip is to the Dominican Republic, and it's broken up over a couple weeks. So we'll have students cycling through for one week and then two weeks. The second core trip is actually stateside, so to Key Largo, Florida, where we're studying a, a model of park management um, that's been implemented and is successful um, so that they understand this is what we're trying to do in the Dominican Republic. Um, So mainly two trips. The staff, though, myself, Matt, um, Charlie, and others as appropriate, will travel throughout the year down to the Dominican Republic for additional research um, and to to keep our connections flowing and the monitoring of the sites up. I think people may be familiar with Key Largo. Is it John Pennycamp mm-hmm. Park down there? That's is that the well park known. that you're working with? I mean, that park you talked about park management. Is that the one? Yes, the John Pennycamp Coral Reef State Park, mm-hmm. as well as the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. So okay. there are multiple entities of parks in the Florida Keys, and it can actually get quite confusing. Uh-huh. Um, but, yes, commonly known, the yeah. John Pennycamp Coral Reef State Park in that greater vicinity. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, anybody have anything to add to that, or I've got another. I've got several other questions I, actually. Well, I just have um, a couple thoughts okay. on where this office might be going, mm-hmm. and I just see more than anything that the Office of Underwater Science has a very bright future. Um, it's there's no question that Charlie has been involved in this program for a number of years, but I don't see him slowing down anytime soon. Um, kind of like a solar panel, it sees the sun. And you obtain energy, and it just keeps going. That's Charlie. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure what we have to face for the years ahead, but I can promise you that it will be good and positive things. Um, More parks to come. There's such a need. And the Caribbean and the Indian 
ocean and the Pacific Ocean, um, this is something, this concept of park management, um, lost ships, coral reefs, that is so big, and we are just in a small, small area doing big things. Is, is there anything similar to this in, in seas in Europe, like the Mediterranean or any, any place like that off of Africa? I'm sure there well, there are, uh, when you talk about underwater parks, we've already mentioned yeah, Pinnacamp. Sure. And uh, Pinnacamp State Park established in, uh, in December of 1960. Um, at the same time, two months earlier, because I've been in these dialogues with California State Parks, Point Lobos was established near Monterey, California. Those were your first worldwide, really, underwater parks established with, that were state, federal recognized. Now, there's the National Park Service. More recently now, the National Marine Sanctuary Program has expanded. Um, but parks in general are a relatively new phenomenon. Shipwreck parks are really quite new. Uh, again, we've my first shipwreck park, 1989, was right after the Abandoned Shipwreck Act in the Florida Keys of San Pedro. So in the Dominican Republic, when we talk about a park, they, they'll immediately say, well, there's park. We're already protecting our waters. And the reality is there's no Coast Guard, there's no Rangers, there's no patrols, there's no one really to enforce and have compliance. So we're talking about special protected areas, living museums within protected areas to kind of sell the concept. But they are now official living museum park sites. Mm-hmm. So worldwide, uh, they're, this is catching on. Um, however, I use at the forefront of this. There's no question. Um, that's why we're in Dominican Republic. We were in the Florida Keys in the 80s, uh, early 90s. So that's pretty civil now. Now our students are going back to see the type of work activities and the management plans we help put together the ships we help sink, uh, the National Register sites we've made, uh, the underwater parks that are established. So as Mylena said, it's good to take students to see how it's working so then we can go to another location. Uh, you know, Matt, you might explain Columbia right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, Columbia is a complicated issue. Uh, essentially what's happening is uh, you have a shipwreck in Columbia, the richest undiscovered galley in the, uh, San Jose. Um, which uh, a lot of people are very interested in finding it, which we're talking um, immense amounts of wealth if it were uh, treasure hunted and brought up and sold. And so this is something that's entered the uh, Colombian legal system of people have been fighting in both directions to protect it and to bring it up. And uh, it's interesting because in Colombia the uh, um, the Constitution actually bans the sale of cultural patrimony. But they've unfortunately, there's been some changes there in a recent vote that went through where they can sort of negotiate as to what is cultural patrimony. And at the moment, although there is still a lot of challenge to it, um, it looks like it might be legal to go and take up the shipwreck and perhaps others. Um, however, there are people who have come to us from the government of Columbia who are interested in learning of the living museums in the sea model who have uh, approached us in the Dominican Republic for training and implementing these so that they can sustainably uh, mm-hmm. protect and manage their uh, submerged cultural heritage and biological resources. Okay. We have a, uh, we have a phone call, so let's uh, go to Valerie on the phone. Valerie? Yeah, I'm getting in here kind of late, but hopefully I'll have time to, to um, clarify a few things. This goes way back to when you were describing the Captain Kidd site and the signage and you know, the tie-up ring so you don't have to drop anchor. And I'm still wondering, you know, is all of this, the signage and everything, below the surface of the water? And if so, how does somebody find this if there aren't rangers? And I'm just I'm just trying to imagine in my mind's eye what it would be like to visit this site and, and if you need scuba gear or if you, like, snorkel or if you can just jump in there and look at, you know, I'm just trying to imagine what it's like. Well, those are uh, great questions. You ought to be talking with the tourism uh, groups of Miami and New York, which are helping to promote the local yeah, five resorts. Yeah, uh, see what it's what it's really like to go yeah. there. But what you have, and, and you're right on the money for your, your questions. The good news is uh, it's set up as a park, which means we have slates and local dive centers that know how to get there. Uh, there's a historic marker buoy on this Indiana placard underwater, so that when you get there, you see this big buoy, and you swim over to it, and right below it's a plaque you can read about the history of the site. So you can read it from a boat or you have to get in? Well, you have to get it in. You can see the historic marker from the boat. You can see the tie-up from a boat. But then you go underwater and you see a plaque that tells you the information. And so there's a lot of interpreting ways to do this, and we've been pretty good. 
Um, you know, there's also land kiosks where you can put placards up. And in this case, you can see a replica at the Children's Museum and then go to the DR and see the real thing. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very accessible, and that's how it's helped protect it. So do you need scuba gear to, like, really explore it? Or no, can... it's eight feet of water. You can snorkel it, but yet within uh, 75 feet, there's a wall that drops down. So we both scuba and snorkel the site. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect setting to do both. Okay, well, that clarifies Thanks. <clears throat> All right. Thanks a lot, Valerie. All right, we only have about uh, two minutes to go, so I wanted to ask about, um, you know, you talked about how Haiti's a dangerous place, and I, I would imagine just working with governments to get into these places, it's got to be kind of complicated. And we have about two minutes, but... No question. Yeah. Um, I could give you lots of stories of lots of places I've been. Uh, the, the key is you have to just be persistent. You, we are selling a concept of pres- preservation, protection, and promotion the three P's we talk about, which makes sense to people uh, uh, rather than selling these objects. But So with that in mind, uh, you just have to work with the Ministry of Tourism, the Ministry of Culture, the Ministry of Environment, whatever country you go to, there are legal entities that are going to say, what is this and why should we be interested in how will it help us? The good thing is that there are excellent models, examples like the Dominican Republic and examples of the Children's Museum where you can see these things exhibited in National Geographic. You can watch it on TV that you can say, here is a success story. We can't save everything. Let's save one little piece of history around this shipwreck and the environment, and that's a success in itself. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we're about out of time. I want to thank you all for being here. And I I have heard Charlie Beaker Beaker referred to as the Indiana Jones of IU, so he's kind of that explorer type, and you guys are right there with him. So we've been talking about uh, the underwater science program. I hope uh, any of you who can will go to the Children's Museum and see examples of what, what these folks are doing around the Dominican Republic and other places uh, throughout the throughout North America, really, and South America, I assume. So, um, again, I want to thank our guests today, Char- Charlie Beaker, Mylena Haydu, Matt Mouse, and Jennifer Pace Robinson, who was here with us today. I want to thank Rachel Morello for joining us today as my co-host. And also, we've had a whole lot of people in the booth, Stuart Norton, uh, Mike Pashkash, Gretchen Frazee. Uh, thank you all for, for helping do the program today. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.